closing out our Hebrews teaching series. We are coming to a close on our summer-long exploration through this New Testament sermon slash letter slash book. Um, but I kind of wanted to start in a different way this morning. Um, I think most of us would agree that the most famous, most quoted verse in the entire library of the scriptures, all 66 books, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How many of you know that, like the back of your hand? You could just say it to anybody when they ask you. Tell me John 3.16. That's awesome. How many of you know John 3.15? Whoa, look at that. How many of you know the context of the, the, the verse? Okay, here we go, right? This reveals something about the, the American approach to the scriptures. The Bible is not just a reference book that we do seek and find games with. Verses has kind of crippled us in having understanding of stories and narratives that are happening throughout the scriptures. And so I would just encourage you to have the lens of narrative when you're reading the text. So when someone says, hey, what's John 3.16? You can quote it, you know it, you memorize it, but you can also help them see the story in which that verse is planted in. So there's a quick little thought there around John 3.16. This passage of scripture, this famous verse, famously reveals the heart and motivation of God toward all of the world. And that eternal life is possible when we believe in the Son. That's what the verse communicates. That it's possible to experience life everlasting if we believe in the Son. But my question for us today is how? How is that possible? How is eternal life possible? How is believing in the Son possible? able to provide eternal life for us? By what mechanism was Jesus, a poor Jewish carpenter's son from rural Israel at the center of history, able to accomplish eternal life for all who believe? How? In other words, what made Jesus so special, so different, so unique? that we, in 2023, can experience eternal life because of one man from rural Israel in the center of history who died on the cross, like many other people did. How? By what mechanism? Most of us, even within the church, have an underdeveloped theology of the person of Jesus. Even if we are his followers, even if we're committed to him, We have an underdeveloped theology and understanding of the person and the work of Jesus. All we have been told, most of us at least, is that we just need to pray a prayer of repentance and, quote unquote, accept Jesus into our heart. 
most of us have been given this instruction. Which, sorry to burst your bubble, accepting Jesus is language found nowhere in the New Testament. Nowhere. Is there any kind of call to accept Jesus into your heart or to invite him into your heart? But this is what we've been told. This is how we will be saved, so to speak. This is the formula, is it not? Confess your sin, repent, accept Jesus into your heart, wipe your hands clean, and keep on going. That's the formula that's been given to us. Matter of fact, if I ask most of you, when were you saved, if you're a believer today, you probably have a moment or a time in history you could point to where you said, you prayed a prayer. I did the thing. I accepted Jesus into my heart. We have been saved if we follow the formula. But we're not always able to know or articulate saved from what? Saved for what? I'm just saved. Some of you are like, I'm just saved. I genuinely don't know from what or for what, but I think I'm saved because I did the thing when I was nine years old. We have an underdeveloped understanding of who Jesus is and what his work accomplished. So, today, I'm going to get a little nerdy with you. You might think I get nerdy every week, but today I'm going to be a little bit more nerdy. Is that okay? Because I do think we have to have a well-developed theology and orthodoxy in order to help guide us in our orthopraxy. Some people will say things to me like, we just need to love Jesus and love our neighbor. And I'm like, you're right. But here's the problem. That's a teaching. That's an idea. And that's a doctrine. So I want us to have proper teaching, proper doctrine, proper understanding, so we know the why behind what we do. Okay? So we're going to be a little nerdy today. I think you can handle it. I, I, do, I do believe you will be able to come along with me um, this morning and, and bear it with me. All right? Uh, last week, the teaching was to kind of whet our appetite or to get us thinking about the nature of holiness. Holiness and faith are themes that are underneath the entire book of Hebrews. Um, but today is kind of a precursor or laying the foundation to a larger vision series that we will begin on holiness next week. In fact, I have a little graphic for you in terms of um, the teaching series that we'll be moving into starting next week. Holy ones, be made whole. So that will be the teaching series we launch into next week. And last week was to weigh your appetite. This week, was to, this week is to kind of be a precursor to lay a foundation for this Holy Ones teaching series that will last for, you know, four, five, six weeks. Who knows how long. This is where the Lord is kind of leading me um, beginning next week. So allow this to kind of frame out our talk today and even our talk from last week. Cool? Yeah, awesome. Well done. Um, we know Jesus of Nazareth is special. He's special. I already articulated that. We've been told that. But the text that Gabriel read for us in Hebrews chapter 13, as the writer is closing out this letter, is reiterating something that has been communicated over and over again throughout the whole of the book, all throughout. That not only is he supreme, 
and superior and special. But he accomplished something special. That impacts us, you and I, even to this day. Not only is Jesus the person supreme, or is Jesus better, or is Jesus special, but his work is as well. What he did was, at a cosmic and eternal scope, special, unique, and supreme. Now, historically, within the realm of Christian theology, Jesus, based on evidence throughout the scriptures, wears three different hats or has three different functions. Some of you might be familiar with this language and some of you it's brand new. The first is Jesus the prophet. Jesus the prophet. The second is Jesus the priest. And the third is Jesus the king. Some people will just say prophet, priest, and king. This is kind of the the threefold functionality of the person of Jesus. Jesus was a prophet, okay? And some say the last of the prophets. He came to teach and to proclaim the kingdom of God, to teach an ethic, a way of life. He came out of a line of prophets, okay? He spoke the things of God to the people of Israel and to those beyond Israel. The second is Jesus the priest, Jesus was able somehow, which we'll get to, to save. You could say here that Jesus is Savior. Most of us resonate that with that idea because of the context that maybe we grew up in. Jesus the priest or Jesus the Savior. The third is Jesus the King. That Jesus rules and reigns and has a kingdom. And there are people in his kingdom and there's a way in his kingdom. So we have prophet, priest, and king. Now all of you are at least kind of moving into the realm of historical Christian theology. But a lot of us tend to look at Jesus through only one or two of these lens. But in order to see the full scope of his work and who he is, we have to look through all three. And how they intersect and where they intersect. We tend to have a fragmented and incomplete Jesus often. If we don't live in response to all three of these, it will produce a compartmentalized, fragmented, broken down, and incomplete Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want a complete Jesus. Because it's only the complete Jesus that can completely save you. Not the incomplete Jesus. Um, Hyper-conservative Christians really like Jesus the Savior. Jesus saves. Soul winning. Get someone to pray that prayer, baby. Knock on a door. Okay? Knock on a door. Give them a track. We got to get them saved. And get up out of here. Okay? That's a reductionist, oversimplified understanding of hyper-conservative, when I say conservative, capital C conservative Christianity, okay? Now, to keep things balanced, um, the liberal Christian, the progressive Christian, really likes Jesus the prophet, loves Jesus the prophet, okay? Proclaiming that there is injustice in the world. Jesus 
is come. He's teaching a new ethic, a way of life. Love your neighbor. Sing kumbaya. Hug somebody. Give a high five. You know? The progressive Christian loves Jesus the prophet. Jesus the teacher. Jesus the activist. But here's what's interesting. I think that often, neither like Jesus the king. Neither like Jesus the king. Because often, we go in there today, okay? We go in there. It's not even 2024 yet, so we're going there. Often the conservative Christian tends to see the president as king. American government, American politics, Christian nationalism. Okay? The progressive Christian tends to view the self as king. Often. Okay? We elevate both. But they both struggle, I think, often. Are tempted to negate this one aspect. And we need all three. Because if Jesus isn't the king, and we're putting our trust in a human king or a human person that's not Jesus, we are bound for utter disaster and total anarchy. Okay? Look around our world, our moment, take time. I think you can see how things eventually will play out and do play out. And Jesus, friends, isn't just one to be accepted. As I said earlier, the idea of accepting Jesus is nowhere in the New Testament. Nowhere at all. He is not one to be utilized to prop up a political agenda. Rather, if he is all three of these and functions all three of these ways, he is one that we submit to and forces our hand and forces a decision in us. But he isn't just someone that we accept. He doesn't ask us to accept him as though he is welcome to our party or he is welcome to our show. Rather, he asks us to pledge full allegiance to him because guess what? It's his party. It's his party. We don't just welcome him to ours. You never accepted Jesus, ever. He accepted you. You never accepted Jesus. He accepted you. What you do, what I do, is repent and believe and follow. That's what we do. Repent, believe, and follow. All the day of our life. If you read up throughout Hebrews, there are all these warnings about people falling away from the faith. Forfeiting their salvation. Giving it up. We don't just accept Jesus. We submit to him. Accepting Jesus is nowhere in the New Testament, not even in the King James Version. It's nowhere in the KJV. If it is there, I will give you $1,000, okay? I'll make that promise. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. 
Again, this idea of repenting and believing and obeying and walking with Jesus is what it means to have faith or to trust in him. And the famous text says, when we do believe in the Son or believe in Jesus, we will possess eternal life and not perish. But there is still more to Jesus. There are multiple layers to Jesus and his work. Because any human being can be a prophet, can be a priest, or can be a king. We can name people. But with Jesus, there is a deeper importance with this eternal and cosmic scope that impacts us, as I said, today, 2023. Not only does Jesus have these three titles or these three functions, prophet, priest, and king, or you could also say as rabbi, as Savior, and as Lord. But he is also one person with two natures, or two essences, or two characters in some regard. Historical theology calls this the hypostatic union. Can you say that? Hypostatic union. Well done. All the seminarians out here are saying, talk about the hypostatic union, yes. Or to kind of simplify it, a union of substance. Union of substance. Two substances come together in Jesus. Fully God, fully man. The earliest creeds of the church, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, these early creeds, okay, they were global in scope across multiple uh, years of development, responding to various heresies, defended this very idea that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and fully man. Okay? One person, two natures. For some of you, that's deeply complex, and it's meant to be. There's mystery to it. But I want to help provide a practical yet incomplete metaphor for us today. So just go with me. All right? Um, over the last few years, fruit-infused water bottles have become rather popular. Anybody have a fruit-infused water bottle? that you're able to have fruit in and drink water out of? Yes, all the hip and cool people with your kiwi and your oranges and your lemon. Wonderful. Where in one water bottle, there can be both water and fruit. You see where I'm going? This is great. But when you drink it, both are fused together to form a specific flavor. Somebody say flavor. Come on, all the charismatics in the house, talk back to me, please. Again, you can have lemon water, strawberry water, blueberry water, whatever. Here's a great example of a fruit-infused water bottle. Savvy, savvy infusion. That's what that one's called, okay? Bougie. I love it. Here's a picture of Jesus, okay? Hypostatic union, okay? One person to essence. I told you it's going to fall short. All right. It's incomplete, but I think it helps. Some of you are going to go back and be like, I understand now. Jesus is a like a fruit-infused water bottle. Totally. Makes sense. Now, when Jesus' blood is poured out, or when the water bottle is poured out, so to speak, what comes out of this fusion is holiness. It's holiness. The taste, the texture, the feel, is holiness. And as we touched on last week, the essence of God is holiness. The very nature of God is holy. 
all of his communicable attributes, meaning the attributes that we experience as humans from God, his mercy, compassion, grace, justice, and even his love, are branded by his holiness. All of these attributes are holy in nature. Holy mercy, holy compassion, holy grace, holy justice, holy love. And there are others as well. Jackie Hill Perry, uh, in her book, Holier Than Thou, which we have a copy of in the bookstore, says, you cannot talk about God without talking about his holiness. I love that. You can't even have a conversation about Yahweh without recognizing his holiness. It's fundamentally impossible because Yahweh himself says, I am holy. I am holy. Multiple times. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all through the Torah. And we are holy because he is holy. But the challenge that we face in our modern era is that most of us want a God who is loving, but not a God who is holy. Most of us are cool with a God who holds our hand, but take issue with a God who tells us how to live. It's like we don't trust him or something. St. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin. I've said this before. He defines sin as the inability to trust God with our deepest happiness. Not only does he want to hold your hand, not only is he loving, but he's also holy and has a specific vision and way of life that he commands us to live into. We just have to trust that it's good and better. A God who is only love or only holy is flat. It's two-dimensional and conceptual. But a God who is both holy and loving is three-dimensional and incarnate. A 2D God can't do anything. That's what deism is. There is a God, but he's distant, doesn't interact with creation. But we're a theistic people. God is three-dimensional. A 3D God can do something. He is holy and he's loving. Some of us have come in today with the experience of a two-dimensional God. A flat God, a distant God. Even Izzy kind of spoke to that idea earlier. But here's the beautiful thing. Even in seasons where we feel like God is distant, we can go back to the reality and to believing that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God, fully man. And the image of the invisible God. Incarnate. God in the flesh, three-dimensional. And that for the last two millennia, Christians across the world has, have ascribed to that truth and have hope because of that, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Theologian Thomas Oden says, God's holiness without God's love would be unbearable. But God's love without God's holiness would be unjust. What people don't realize often is to remove God's holiness from his love is to actually make him unjust. He becomes like a parent who is passive to a kid who's wiling out, who just doesn't care. I love my kid, but I'm not going to do anything to, to intervene. We wouldn't say that's just. God's wisdom, he goes on to say, found a way to bring them congruently together. It involved a cross. Jesus of Nazareth, Fully God, fully man, prophet, priest, king, was and is the picture and the face of the holiness of God. 
Jesus was and is holy. If you struggle with the idea of holiness, you're probably going to struggle with the idea of Jesus. He was and is the ambassador of all things holy. The spokesperson of God's holiness. Jesus was like how Jake is for State Farm, but for holiness. Okay? Or Patrick Mahomes and you know, Subway or something. The spokesperson, the representative, the ambassador of God's holiness was Jesus. We see this most clearly in Mark chapter 1. So let's go to Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 24, to look at the nature of Jesus as being holy. It says this, They, being the disciples in Jesus, went to Capernaum, And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. We mentioned that last week. Not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit or tormented by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Keep in mind, this is a tormented, demonically oppressed person saying who Jesus is and given his identity. You are the Holy One of God. Keep in mind, this tormented person is in the synagogue. That should tell us something as people who gather Just because you're in church doesn't mean that you haven't been tormented by the demonic. For some of you, that's weird, but for a lot of us, it's real. And Jesus wants to deliver you and set you free, but he can't if he isn't king, if he isn't prophet, if he isn't savior and priest, let alone the Holy One of God. Because the demonic cannot flourish in the presence of God. Light shines in the darkness. When you walk into a room and it's dark, you flip a light on, everything is lit up. And some of us actually go through seasons of life where we're really struggling and we feel attacked and we have been maybe even entangled in sin and we can't even muster the word Jesus because there's this sense of tugging away from, we're being pulled in different directions. Or we we have a sense of shame. We say Jesus and our head kind of goes to the ground. But I'm proclaiming in this space today, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is teacher. Jesus is rabbi. Jesus is savior. Jesus is healer. Jesus is redeemer. Jesus is holy and Jesus is God. This text helps us see two things. Not only does it reveal to us that Jesus is holy, but he's also God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, roughly 29 times, Yahweh is called, guess what, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. So we see here that Jesus is not only considered holy, but we're seeing a connection to his divinity. There's this claim that he is divine, that he is God. And by the way, for the skeptics in the room, Mark is also the most recognized account among secular historical scholars. The most recognized. The second thing this text reveals to us 
as it pertains to the nature of Jesus, is it helps us to define what holy means. Because as I mentioned last week, most of us are just ignorant of the idea of holiness and what it actually means. But it helps us to define what the word holy means. Look at the text. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Here's a key key few words. Not as the teachers of the law. Meaning, Jesus was different. Or as the young folks say, Jesus hit different. Okay? That may not have been the proper way of saying that. I don't know. I'm not cool anymore. Okay, once you hit 30, you're not cool. Like, you're just not cool. But Jesus was different. Jesus was distinct. And Jesus was set apart from the rest. In the Old Testament, the word for holy in the Hebrew was kadash. Can you say that? Kadash. Well done. This word kadash appears over 600 times or so in the Old Testament, and it meant set apart, distinct, other, consecrated, dedicated, or utterly unique. That's the language that Tim Mackey uses. I think it's very helpful. Utterly unique in both the moral dimension and in the transcendent dimension. Kadash wasn't just a moral purity term. It was also a transcendent term. I was reading the lectionary text this morning, and it was the story of Moses and the burning bush. Think about the burning bush being on fire, ablaze with the presence of God. And God says, you are standing on what? Holy ground. Fire is both powerful and purifying. God was there. It was a transcendent moment. So the idea of Kadash is both a moral concept and a transcendent concept, primarily oriented around the idea of something or someone being utterly unique and distinct from the rest. All objects that were in the temple were considered holy, including the temple itself being holy. And this meant that those objects, including the temple, were set apart or consecrated to belong totally to God and for his purposes. No other purposes. The Ark of the Covenant didn't spend time in the temple and it was passed around people in Israel. Like it was totally God's, Yahweh's, set apart, consecrated, dedicated. And God's presence, his transforming presence, his Um, all-consuming fire, his tangible presence, or his Shekinah glory. Come on, charismatics. God's presence and power rested in the temple and on these objects because they belonged to him and were made Kadash, or holy. So you could say for something to be holy means it wholly belongs to God. Totally to him. So, for Jesus to be called Holy One of God meant that Jesus was distinct and different from the world in moral excellence in particular. His vision of moral living was superior and different and distinct from the rest of the world. He also belonged totally to God. A key word I want to help us frame out holiness is the word devotion or devoted. Objects are dedicated. People are devoted. 
you can be dedicated to a craft, but to be dedicated to a person just means you're devoted. And because we serve a personal God, we aren't just dedicated, we are devoted. That's what it means to be holy. And Jesus belonged totally to God, total sense of belonging. If you have come in today and you want an eternal sense of belonging, the only way forward for you is holiness. The only way. Jesus was also an instrument of God's presence, power, and purpose. So we see these dimensions of Jesus in helping us frame out what the word holy actually means. Now, Jesus of Nazareth was and is, as I've mentioned over and over again, the enfleshed image or the character of the invisible God, the embodied 3D picture of Yahweh and his holiness. But remember, Jesus was also fully human, just like you and I experience every kind of trial that you and I can experience. Death, betrayal, anxiety, worry, depression even, work, laboring, sweating, laughter, fun, joy, tension in relationships, temptation. He experienced all of it. And the famous text says, God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. He gave the embodiment of his love and holiness in human form. But again, why? Why? Let's keep getting nerdy. Are you guys doing okay? You hanging in with me? All right. No one's asleep yet, so we're doing okay. Great. Human beings, all of us, were and are made in the image of God. We don't bear the image of God. It's not something that's in us. We were made in it. That's a key distinction for us. We were made in his image as human beings. Okay? Originally created in his mold and pattern. Because again, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Humans were made in this image to belong totally to God and use for God's purposes. To reflect or to image God and his holiness on earth, and to enjoy his presence. The text says in Genesis chapter 2 that literally God is walking in the garden. Some scholars think that was just Jesus. That was Jesus of Nath, walking in the garden, enjoying the presence. How beautiful, right? You're You're living in Bicentennial Park, hanging out in the flowers in the garden, you, your best friends, and Jesus forever. And it's like 80 degrees and sunny. And it's football season for eternity. Now, depending on who your favorite team is, that could be hell. Or that could be the new creation. (laughs) I'm a state fan, so that sounds like hell. But anyway. God's presence was in the garden. And humans were originally set apart for God and to enjoy his presence. But... Humans, though they were set apart, ended up separating themselves from God, not for God, in both a moral dimension and a relational dimension. They made a moral decision. God's presence was in this garden fully, but when humans moved away, they moved in the language of John Steinbeck's famous novel, East of Eden, which is what that whole novel is about, life outside of the garden thinking that human beings, we, could flourish and make do without him. We got this. We don't need you. 
hasn't gone very well. And it's found its way in through the DNA in some crazy epigenetic type of way through the human experience. And now we look around and we see this stain known as the human condition that is unique to humans. It's marred the human capacity, created brokenness in the human experience with God, with others, and with the created world. Something went wrong. And something is wrong. Is it not? Ask any person of any faith background. Is something off in the world? Yes. That means there's some innate desire for rightness, for wholeness, for peace, for shalom, for justice, for harmony. Something's gone wrong. So there has to be a salvation plan, some sort of redemptive plan. And this is where we begin to distinguish the Christian tradition from other religions and even psychological traditions. All think something is wrong, but all have different salvific proposals in order to achieve redemption. Other religions in the world say, make yourself holy and then present yourself to God for the possibility, hopefully, if you cross your fingers, of salvation. Christianity says God acts to save you first and then makes you holy. And in doing so is a holy act. Here we see the difference. One says go after God. The other says God went after you. Major distinction. Major distinction. Much of secular psychology was developed as a response to this human condition. However, the primary schema of humanistic psychology is that humans are born totally pure and are made corrupt by the brokenness of other people. Parents, society, friends, systems, and the like. But what came first, the person or the society? And the question still remains, how did innate pure and totally an absolute good person create a corrupt society? There really is no answer for such a question. Where is the source of the brokenness and the trauma? What's the source? The person, the human being. It's infiltrated every aspect of society and every system has experienced the brokenness of humanity. So, the salvation plan of both other religions and secular psychology say, do it on your own. Do it on your own. Human ingenuity, innovation, politics, technology, you name it. But one says you have to do it for God. The other says do it for yourself. But Jesus says, I will make a way for you. Do you see the difference? All right, some of you are like, I am lost right now. <laughs> I pray you're not. Please, Lord, please. Give revelation, God, right now. For this perpetual cycle of sin that haunts the human experience to be done away with, Jesus had to do something special. For brokenness to be mended, Jesus had to do something special. Jesus had to be fully God or totally holy and fully human, totally exposed to sin. Thomas Oden goes on to say, love was the divine motive. Love is a motivation, okay? 
Love was the divine motive. Holiness was the divine requirement. Again, in order for God to be just. Love motivated. Holiness, though, provide the requirement. So Jesus goes to the cross. He had to give his life. And formally, the priest offered the sacrifice of holy animals, pure animals. But now, the priest, who is the Holy One of God, would offer himself. No longer is the priest just offering an animal sacrifice. The high priest, the Holy One of God, offers himself in form of sacrifice. Now, a priest simply is a representative. We actually are all priests. We'll get into that later in the series that we start next week. But the high priest would have to represent the entire people with the offered sacrifice. When the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, he would represent the whole of the people and provide atonement or atonement for the people because he is representing all of them, providing sacrifice for sin but he had to continue to do it over and over and over and over and over again because the system was innately broken. Something greater had to happen. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, becomes the representative of all of humanity. Theologians refer to this as Jesus becoming the second Adam or the last Adam. He represents all of humanity in his life, and he actually shows us the true way of being human despite the uh, brokenness of the, the lineage of Adam and Eve in the human condition. He recapitulates. That's a big theological word where he just, he kind of summarizes in a new way the way to be human. And by doing so, representing all of us, he is able to somehow in a mysterious way, because he's fully God, fully man, able to invite us into himself, and we are incorporated in him on the cross providing the way and the possibility for salvation for every person across the world, across time. Welcome to Theology 101. Jesus becomes his representative of all humanity, but it is once and for all because he was a sinless, pure, set-apart, consecrated human. You can read Hebrews 7, and it will expound more on that. And Jesus also conquered death, which death was the cost of sin. Death was the cost of sin. Altogether, he, he conquered it because he was also God and he raised himself from the grave. Sinless human goes to the cross, providing sacrifice, but because he's also immortal in God, he goes into the grave and is able to actually resurrect from the grave, eliminating death as a possibility for all time. And death now becomes a doorway rather than a wall. Tracking? Awesome. Hebrews 13, 11 through 12. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. Keep in mind, outside of the camp, outside of the tabernacle, outside of the city, was an area of defilement. It was unpure, it was unholy. That's what it represented. Okay? But here comes Jesus, the incarnate temple, the presence of God. It says, also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus, the Holy One, goes into a place of defilement and breaks this chain of brokenness, providing way of salvation because of this offering of his life. 
that is how salvation is possible. That's what Jesus did that makes him so special. In 2022, we're going to ease up a little bit, okay? In 2022, a, a Dallas man broke into the Dallas Museum of Art and broke four different pieces or installations in this art museum. Specifically, a sixth century ceramic pot from Greece and an ancient red clay pot from, the, from about 450 BC. Um, these two pieces uh, totaling around $5 million or so. And I love the, the title of the article. It said something like that the man was arrested for breaking into an art museum because he was mad at his girl. It literally said something like that. And I was like, what did his girl do to him? You know? Like, this is wild. So, so he goes in, and he just starts smashing things with chairs. I mean, this is interesting. Look it up. No joke. I have a picture for you guys to see. He just goes in and starts smashing these art pieces that are worth up to $5 million. Okay? Hello, insurance. Right? But the article I found interesting referred to these works of art as irreplaceable. They can't be replaced. They're gone forever. Five million dollars. Unique piece of art from thousands of years ago. Hundreds of years ago. In some ways, by definition, these pieces of art at the Dallas Museum of Art were utterly unique. They were distinct. And even holy, you might say, to some degree belonging totally to the DMA, the Dallas Museum of Art. But Jesus, the embodied Holy One of God, the creator of the world in human form, or in the language of the artist Vincent Van Gogh, the artist greater than all other artists, becomes a creature or becomes an ornate piece of art and is broken in order that we might be saved renewed and restored to his image and the one in which we were modeled after. When Jesus died, eternal life entered eternal death, eliminating its power. It's as though Jesus went into the depths of darkness and death and flipped on the light switch that you can't turn off broke it all together. In a famous book by an early church father, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, African church father, he wrote a book called On the Incarnation. Hard to read. But here's what he says that I think so paints a theologically beautiful picture of what Jesus did. He says, The word perceived that corruption could not be ridden of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the word, or the Logos, being immortal, could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death, in order that, in dying a sufficient exchange for all in itself, remaining incorruptible through his indwelling, might thereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well by the grace of the resurrection. He goes on to say, For naturally, since the word of God was above all, when he offered his own temple and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all, 
He fulfilled in death all that was required. In this act of death, and since he was raised to life, Jesus wasn't only providing forgiveness for your mishaps and your sin and your brokenness. He wasn't just providing a pardon for you who are guilty. But he also provided victory over sin. Victory over brokenness, deliverance, freedom, healing, wholeness, transformation. He didn't just give us a new physical address, but also a new home to live in. The sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth is not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification and our holiness. Not just for our reconciliation, but also for our restoration. Not just for our standing before God, but for our walking with God. Not just a legal transaction, which a lot of us have been taught. That was the only thing Jesus did was provide a way legally for us to stand before God. That's not all he did. That's incomplete. He didn't just provide a legal transaction, but a means of transformation to be made holy. To be made whole again. To be restored. To be made new. To be regenerated. To be sanctified to belong again, to walk and enjoy his presence again. John 17, 19, final words of Jesus before he goes to the cross, praying to his Father, for them I sanctify myself, I make myself holy, that they too may be truly sanctified, that they too may be made holy. Mildred Banks Winecoop, who I mentioned last week, the theologian says, it cannot be merely said that Christ died to provide forgiveness for sin or for our justification only. Nothing less than our sanctification is sufficient to comprehend the mystery of the death of Christ on the cross. How did he do it? Because he was the Holy One of God. And like an ornate object, Christ was broken so that we might also be made ornate once again. Mended by the Spirit through His resurrection. You and I do not just have the offer of redemption, but we have the offer of reunification with the Holy Presence of God. Where our deepest happiness is felt, where our deepest joy is met. And like the fruit-infused water bottle, Jesus' holy blood, his, his blood is poured out on those who believe, making all who do holy and sanctified. And there is only one response that we can give. And in verse 15 of Hebrews 13, it tells us, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God, not a sacrifice of animals, but a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that open.